hang on a second. Sorry, it's not not quite right. Let's uh, go ahead and click it. Yeah, maybe this this will be here. Yeah. No, 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 that's not it. That's not it. Let's, let's do. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Yes. I'm so crazy right now. You know, it's harder to make an entrance than you think it is. People are like, oh my gosh, it's my first time here. Does he do that every time? Where's Josh? Help. So imagine for a minute if, if not only did you have to make an entrance, right, which is really hard, especially if you don't have music, but people have been anticipating this entrance that someone is going to make, and they've been anticipating it for thousands of years. In fact, they've been writing down things about it, prophets. They've been writing it on scrolls. They read it to one another. They anticipate this. And then, then you're in this moment where you have to make this entrance, this grand sort of triumphal entrance in how exactly would you do that? And if we're all honest a little, when we read the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, right, this sort of epic moment, if we can just be honest, and I don't think it's being disrespectful, I think it's just being honest, we feel just a hair bad that he's on a donkey. Because like, we're just thinking, like, like if we were doing it, if I was designing riding into Jerusalem, right, making this announcement that I'm the Messiah, and here I am, I'm on a horse. I'm on a big horse, and I'm galloping in, and everybody's cheering, and I ride around, and then I make a speech, right? The rousing sort of Maximus or Braveheart gladiator kind of speech, right? That rallies everybody and everybody's super excited. And yet this is not the kind of entrance that Jesus makes in at all. He rides in on a donkey. And yet, if you were in Jerusalem at that time, if you were in this procession, if you saw somebody riding in to the city on a donkey, it would have been as dramatic and out of context as me walking up on stage in Beyonce. If I would have just finished off the dance, right, that you were praying to yourself, dear God, don't let him dance, right? It would have been that sort of shot. This is what Jesus did. This is what we're going to unpack this morning because we're back in Matthew now. And Josh thankfully timed it so that we're right on chapter 21, right in time for the triumphal entry, and we're back into this section. You know, here's where we've been. Jesus spent his life up here in Galilee, far away from Jerusalem down to the south. He had been up here with the boys, and then he came down and finished up, and then they were on a journey, and the last couple of uh, Sundays we had been in here, and now we're entering down into Jerusalem. Not only are we entering into Jerusalem, it's Sunday, and Jesus is going to die on Friday. We're entering into the Passion Week. Not only that, we have all of these people from all around this time, pilgrims from everywhere, are walking to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. 
The time when the Israelites remember the time when they were in slavery in Egypt. And the Lord sent the tenth plague on the Egyptians. And because they killed a lamb and painted the blood on the doorpost, the, the angel of death would pass over and Pharaoh allowed them to go and they were freed. This is the week that they're celebrating. And so pilgrims from all over would have been walking in this, to, to, to Jerusalem over this time. And we open up on 21, and Jesus, as Jesus and the disciples approach Jerusalem, so they're not even there yet. They're on the outskirts. They're in the midst of all these people. They come to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Now, Jerusalem is here sort of up on a hill, and there's a valley called the Kidron Valley just to the east. And the Mount of Olives is over here, and Bethpage is on the Mount of Olives. And it's an important sort of geography that Jesus is sort of laying out here because Bethpage is inside of what would have been considered the city of Jerusalem at that time. If you were a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, you needed to be in the city limits of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes in and they start and sort of camp here in Bethpage at the beginning. So this would have been considered in and there would have been people camping everywhere. Jerusalem is about the size of Bentonville. It's about 30, 35,000 people during Passover week. Scholars say it would have swelled up to well over 100,000, maybe even 150,000 people pouring into this little bitty walled town. So they were spread out all over the countryside, camping out, anticipating Thursday night, celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. It would have been a very exciting time. And as they get close to Bethpage, Jesus sends two of the disciples on ahead. And he says, go to the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with a colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now, I grew up my whole life thinking that these two disciples did some sort of Jedi mind trick on the owner. They're over untying the donkey, and the owner's coming out going, where are you doing my donkeys? And they're like... The Lord needs them. And they're like, the Lord needs them. We're going to take the colts. Take the colts, please, right? No, this is not what was going on. This is Jesus being very strategic and very prepared. He had already sent somebody ahead. He had paid for these donkeys. Now, we think donkeys means you couldn't afford a horse. I get that. 21st century, if you could afford a horse, you would do it. No, no, a donkey in that day was worth two months to two years' wages. This was not some cheap animal that was acquired. A donkey was chosen on purpose, and we will see what that purpose was. Jesus was being strategic. He was being thoughtful. He was being intentional. He understood what he was doing at this moment. And it took place exactly what he said would happen. He went and got a donkey. And it was to, took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. That's Zechariah 9. Jesus understood that they were anticipating a Messiah to come riding in on a donkey's colt. If you were a king and you were riding in somewhere on a donkey, you come in peace. Horses were animals of war. In fact, the Old Testament is full of the Lord actually pitting himself against horses and chariots, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea, 
right? They're going to come against you with horses and chariots. You're going to see these horses, but the power of the Lord is the thing that's going to save you. It's why we don't see pictures of Moses mounted on a steed, right? You see Moses standing in the wilderness with a stick. We don't see David on a horse, right? There's no like David or Moses or Joshua horse pictures, God was doing something in a very different way. So a king riding in and riding in on a donkey was a symbol of peace. David had ridden into the city after Absalom, right? So his son, and there's this battle, and is Absalom going to be the king? A bunch of people wanted it, and after Absalom died and David comes back in, he comes in, back in riding on a donkey. When Solomon was going to be anointed king, he comes riding in on a donkey, and now there is a new king that it comes riding in to this city of peace, riding in in peace. And the two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and they bought the donkey and the colt, and they threw their garments over the colt, and Jesus sat on it. And most of the crowd, right? So who is this crowd, right? These are all the people from up north, right? These are all the people that had been coming down with him. These are all the people that knew Jesus, He had been ministering among them. That's who's with him, the people from up north who were pilgrims coming down. This was not Jerusalemites. They're not in Jerusalem. They're just on the outside. So all of these people, suddenly now, some of them had been hearing he's the Messiah. They'd been keeping it quiet. Now he's unveiling himself. Because if you're sitting on a donkey when everybody else is walking on foot, you're meaning to be noticed. Jesus isn't hiding anymore, and the crowd is excited. We've seen what this prophet from the north is, and we've wondered if he's the Messiah. And now that we see him on Zechariah's donkey, and he's about to ride into Jerusalem, they're excited. They're spreading their garments on the road in front of him. They're cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Jesus in the center of the procession, and the people around him all shouting, Right, Shouting from the psalms, these are the Hallel songs, these are the psalms that you would sing as you marched into the city of Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hosanna, it means God save us. These are messianic psalms that they're singing out, praise God, praise for the son of David, right? They're announcing, they're saying, we see this man as being the son of David, it's being proclaimed openly. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, praise God in the highest heaven they understand and believe this is a messianic procession the entire city of jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered who is this who's on the donkey who is this guy on the donkey now if you remember if you weren't here on the teaching where we taught about the difference between the north and the south in israel it's important that you understand this the folks up north were the country folk they were farmers They were the bumpkins, they weren't as educated, they weren't as sophisticated, but that's who Jesus had been among. There were probably people laying down their garments who had been healed by Jesus, delivered by Jesus, probably members of the 5,000 that had been miraculously fed. This is the group from up north. Up north was also under Herodian rule. Herod is a Jew. He was allowed to govern up here. They're marching down to Roman territory because Jerusalem is the capital. Rome is in charge. And they have a prefecture named Pilate. And he is in charge. And if some Jews from up north are marching down with a king into Jerusalem, this is not going to be pretty. 
They had seen this before. They had seen other messiahs come in and they had seen Rome squash them immediately. Right? So this isn't just a a tame little thing here. This is a declaration that is going to be dangerous politically. It's going to be dangerous religiously. It's going to be dangerous across the board, him coming in like this. And the crowds, the people from up north said, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is this northern prophet. You've been sending your Pharisees up there to spy on him. You've heard secrets whispered about him. This is Jesus the prophet. And as further evidence, they're, they're calling him son of David. They're calling him son of David. They're thinking he's the Messiah, but they back off just a little. Again, it's just a little bit of uh, dramatic evidence about what they understand. They're like, man, we can't say this is the son of David and the Messiah yet. We're really hoping he is, but we're just going to back off and say this is the prophet from up north. You know, you've heard about him. We're all excited he's here, and we're looking forward to see what he's going to do. And what he is going to do is he's going to drive right into the temple. Now, I know if you read this in Mark, Jesus comes into the temple, he walks around, and he goes back to Bethpage, spends the night, and then comes back in and clears out the temple. And what Matthew is telling you is something different. And what you shouldn't get caught up on is who's right, which way did it actually happen. The point is that these things happen, and Matthew is orchestrating this in this way. He's telling you this story in this way because he wants you to get the point that Jesus wasn't just coming to Jerusalem. Jesus was coming to the heart of Jerusalem. See, we we imagine temple, and we don't really appreciate how immense and grand this temple was. Solomon's temple had been defiled Right? It had been defiled by this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And without going into all that he did, he slaughtered a pig on the altar. And the Maccabean revolt came and they kicked all of these guys out. And they reconsecrated the temple. And then Herod came in and fixed a lot of things. It was Solomon's temple that had been built. He fixed a lot of things and repaired them. And then he restored it to greatness. He was called Herod the Great and this was called Herod's temple, it's the second temple period. And it was this grand 33-acre structure. If you can't imagine space, a Walmart supercenter like the one at Pleasant Grove is on about 25 acres. So imagine one and a half times that size, and that's how big this place was. This was enormous, right? So Jesus is entering into this. And the city of Jerusalem is built around this. If you've ever visited Salt Lake City and gone down to see the Mormon temple in the center, and you suddenly realize that all the streets are numbered to let you know how far away from the temple you are, that is the kind of city that we're talking about Jerusalem was. And he goes right in to the very heart of this place. This is where Jesus is headed. And he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Now, what was happening is they were buying and selling animals out here in this portico, many scholars believe. And used to, they didn't. Used to, they sold them outside of the walls. Because if you're a pilgrim coming in, and you have certain kinds of money, but you have to pay your temple tax, and they require you to have a certain kind of money, and it's not the money that you use outside of this area, you're going to have to do some money changing. And you're not going to bring a live animal with you to kill for a sacrifice. You're going to buy your doves when you get there. 
But it used to happen outside, all of this sort of money changing and other things. And the scholars believe that Caiaphas, the high priest, who is over everything that happens inside of this temple, had recently allowed the money changers to actually come inside the temple walls and set up shop. Basically, a little Bentonville farmer's market was taking place right here, selling doves and exchanging money. And this is what Jesus comes into. And what Jesus is doing here isn't trying to come in and turn the entire temple 33 acres into an uproar. He is making a symbolic action. He's coming in and declaring something very specific and it is a symbolic action. It is not coming in. If he's over here in this little corner and just tossing over some things, it's not uproaring everything. Yes, it would cause a little bit, but that wasn't his point. Because if it would have caused an entire uproar that, hey, there's this new king and he's turning over everything and he's announcing his kingship right there, the Romans would have come in and squashed it immediately. He's doing something different. He knocked over tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, 7. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah here. And what he's doing is he is coming in and saying, your leadership has lost the vision for what this place is supposed to be about. It is supposed to be about one thing, and they are allowing it to be about something else. Jesus is picking a fight. See, it's Sunday, and he's got to die on Friday. And he's not going to kill himself. The clock is ticking for Jesus. And he understands that he is going to have to be tried and executed in four days. And he is going right to the heart of everything. And he is saying, you don't understand what this place is about, and your leaders have lost this, and Jesus is there to pick a fight. So just because he's coming in peace on a donkey, don't think this is a wimpy Jesus. This is Jesus walking right into the heart of everything, picking a fight with all of it. So what happens? How do they respond? The blind and the lame come to him in the temple and he healed them. It is so easy to just gloss over that because Jesus has done so many miracles and we've studied so many of them. But these are the only ones recorded inside of the city of Jerusalem. The blind and the lame. And if you were there at this point in time, if you were one of these leaders who saw this happening, you would understand how significant that the blind and the lame specifically were being healed because you would know your Jewish history. And your Jewish history would tell you when the city of Jerusalem was taken from the Jebusites, when David was on the outside and the Lord said, I want you to go take this place. This is going to be my city. This is going to be the place where my temple, where my presence dwells. I want you to take this place. Go take it from the Jebusites. The Jebusites heard this, and they looked down at David's armies down the hill, and they said, oh, pff, our blind and our lame could take care of you. Literally, this is what they said. And David hears that they say this, and he's like, I hate 
these blind and lame Jebusites. And the Lord delivered it. And because David said, I hate these blind and lame Jebusites, it became known throughout that you did not allow the blind and the lame to come into either the city or certainly not into the temple. And yet now what is happening is the new David is riding in in peace, coming into the very heart of the thing. And the people who need him the most, the blind and the lame, are saying, I don't care what David said. This is the new David, and I am coming to him, and I want to be healed, and I want to receive sight. Jesus is coming, and he is making a point that no one is missing. Certainly not the leading priest and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. They understood what all of the people were thinking. This is the Messiah. This is the new son of David. He is coming here to do this. And this is going to mean trouble for us as religious leaders and probably trouble for us as Israelites trying to live peacefully here in this city. And they were indignant. They were not curious. They were indignant. And Jesus, they asked him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes, I hear them. And you know what verse they're quoting? It's Psalm 8-2 that David wrote. Have you not ever read that? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Your king, your Messiah that you've been waiting on is here. And you know who recognizes it? Children and blind people and cripples you won't even let in here. They're the ones that recognize me. And he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. We can only imagine the reaction of those priests. In fact, we'll see what their reaction is going to be as he continues to unveil and reveal himself to them. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, what Jesus is doing, right? When you see it on the flannel graph and he's on the donkey and some people lay it out, right, and it's coming in, it just seems like this, like, oh, Jesus is here. And then you wonder to yourself, why are they so fickle? Because they're yelling, crucify him a week later. And then you suddenly realize everything that this means, what it means for all of the citizens of Jerusalem, what it means for these temple leaders, what everything that he was doing, what that meant to that time period. Now the challenge is, is how do we hear about this story? It's fun to hear little wrinkles about it and realize and understand, oh wow, that's what that means. And how. But here we are, we're in the 21st century, sitting in Bentonville, Arkansas. We're miles and miles away from Jerusalem. This doesn't, like, what does this have to do with us? And I think the answer is everything. Because the question now is, what are we going to do when Jesus shows up? Or how do we react when Jesus shows up? And I think we react a lot of the same ways that people did back then. It's easy to look back on them with the hindsight. We're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of resurrection. We're on this side of the upper room, right? And it's easy to look back on them and just sort of write it off. But we still have these reactions today, right? Jesus shows up, and I'm sure there were people in Jerusalem who just missed it, who didn't see it at all. Passover is coming. It's three or four days away, right? It's Sunday. Sabbath was over. It's the first day of the week they're looking forward, right? They're making preparations. They're out in the market buying things, right? I got to go to Chaim and get his leg of lamb, and he has the best leg of lamb, and it's all the way on the other side of the city, and I got to go over here, and I need bitter herbs, and when are we going to get wine, and I got to make this preparation, and what are they singing about in the streets? I can't think about that right now. I've got so much to do, right? It's incredibly easy to just miss Jesus when he's showing up because we're busy. We got things to do and places to be. It's also very easy 
to see Jesus show up, and a lot of the times the way we see Jesus show up is in people's responses to him, right? Somebody that's like really worshiping or getting into it, or maybe they're kneeling, or maybe they're crying, or maybe they're demonstrating because the, the, they understand their lameness and their blindness, and they're responding in such a way, and we're beside them, and it makes us uncomfortable because we're a lot like those sophisticated Jerusalemites who are, you know, just sort of like, hmm oh, what's this over here, right? It's, I don't know what that is. It's some sophisticated thing I'm holding in my hand. It's, right? And we have sort of this, oh, you know, like the world does. Oh, you Christians, you simpletons, right? Believe that book and all of this sort of thing, right? We can have that sort of reaction rise up in our hearts. Or maybe we are super excited about Jesus, and maybe we do understand our lameness and our blindness, but we have to see it in ourselves and understand our condition before we're going to want to ask to actually engage with him, right? Riding in this way, showing up in such an unexpected way. We're going to have to understand these things about ourselves. And it's... it's, it's easy to understand that we have a sin nature, right? It's easy to understand that we have a, a fallenness inside of us. We all get that. We all understand that there was, you know, once there was this sort of like zombie-like quality, right? There was a zombie, Sean, that was sort of like this nasty, ugly, gross creature that seemed like he had crawled up out of the grave, right? And, and, and all he wanted to do was bad things. And I took a shovel and I hit him on the head and I rolled him into the grave and I shoveled in some dirt and I'm like, this is going to be better off for the both of us, right? Right? And I sort of hide him down there. And we realize that every now and then he sort of sticks his hand up out or he just sort of comes out at unexpected times and we just hit him over the head again and we bury him up again. Right? Because it's like, what's going on with this sort of nature in us? I, like, I thought he was dead. I thought he was going to stay down there. Right? And so we, we build this sort of tomb thing around him. We build a structure around him to sort of hide him away. And he's sort of over here, and we're off over here. And then suddenly you hear he's sort of raised up again, and he's banging on the door, and he's going, Sean! And I'm over here just trying to have a nice conversation, and he's yelling over there. And I'm just like, what in the world? No, I don't hear anything. You hear something? And then I'm just a second, right? And I'm going, get down there and be quiet. And then one day as we walk along long enough with Jesus, we start to realize that we're not two people. We're not zombie us and this us. That's crazy, right? That zombie us is still sort of inside of here. There are things that aren't fully dealt with. And what actually happens isn't it's not off over there just dead and buried. I'm sort of trying to have a conversation here and it's reaching out and sort of messing with people, right? I'm in a situation or circumstance that makes me uncomfortable. I'm under pressure, I'm in this. Somebody says something the wrong way. Cuts me off in traffic. I haven't had my coffee yet. And, ah, right? It's just sort of like, what in the world is that? That's not Christian. Oh, my goodness. i got to tuck that thing back in. And usually a good button-up covers that and a tie, right? Keeps the arm. We just think maybe a tie bar here. That'll keep the arm coming out. And it just keeps coming out. Like, what in the world? What do I do about this part of me? What do I do with this part of me? And this is what Jesus is coming to deal with. Jesus is coming at religious you and religious me that tries to pretend like that nasty thing isn't in there wanting to grrr, its arm out at just the wrong time. And there's a whole system that Jesus is coming to and saying, guys, 
Can we all just admit that this sacrificial thing once a year isn't dealing with that nasty, dead man? Look at your leaders. They're all washed on the outside, but you know that they're just nasty creatures on the inside. We will see in a few chapters when they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he says yes. They go berserk. They rip their clothes, they pull their hair out, they scream at the top of their lungs, they begin beating him. These monsters come out of them that that old system was unable to deal with. And this is what Jesus is coming right into the heart of. And I think it's what he's doing to each one of us all day, every day. Is he is coming right into the heart of that. Because the longer we walk with the Lord, it's easier to say things like, walk with the Lord. And we stop telling things to people, we share things with people, right? And we don't gossip anymore, it's a prayer request. Have you heard about Shirley? Yeah, I know, she's put on some weight. Oh, I know, in her marriage, we should pray for her. Right? And we cover all of this up with religiousness because we don't know what to do with that raging beast inside of us that shows up every now and then. And so we start avoiding the things that actually make it come out, right? Which are like, I don't know, unsaved people. I find that that part of me like wants to sort of like, ah, over here with them. And we pressure situations and I don't want to go do that and I don't want to be outside of my comfort zone. And so we create this little comfortable, safe, secure, holy, sanctified, don't lean this way, don't lean this way. Oh, and that form of worship and this, you know, here's how it actually ought to all happen and how it ought to all look. Here's the songs that don't make me uncomfortable and the style of this and that, and that, 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 right? And we get in this little religious box. And then we read verses like, count it all joy when you face various trials. And we start to understand, wait a second, Is the Holy Spirit actually conspiring against us to put us in situations where that thing is going to rage out of us and make us deal with it? Yes. Yes. Because I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for seven days or you are a pastor that has been walking with the Lord for 35 years, you still have mess to deal with. And if your background has trauma in it, if it has abuse in it, if it has a series of years of bad decisions, if it has difficult health, if it has joblessness, if it has people or relationships that have hurt you, especially parents, spouses, teachers, youth leaders, pastors, priests, I don't care who it is, it makes junk inside of there. That monster in there feeds on the crud in your life. And what religious you wants to do is to pretend like it doesn't exist and to just walk about and hope that tie or that pretty thing and my nice hair is just going to keep that all at bay and the Holy Spirit is doing everything he can to put you in a situation to let that out. So we can do what? We can drag it into the light and talk about it as a community because we're not supposed to have any shame because we all understand we've been there and this is safe and we love each other and because what Jesus did and demonstrated is that he can go to the cross 
and hang there with all of your crud that's ever happened and all the crud you've done to others because we're all victims and we're all perpetrators. All of that, zombie you hanging on the cross with Jesus so that he went down and left it there once and for all and Jesus' body was dead. And what does the Holy Spirit do? It says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it comes into dead things and turns them into new living things. Paul calls it a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, something the world has never seen. You're not meant to hide this. You're not meant to reform zombie you. It's not meant to just be locked in a box or ignored. It's meant to come out into the light of confession and community and it's meant to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit did to Jesus. His body brought him back to life in a really cool body that could teleport and walk through walls and ascend up into heaven and see spiritual things. You're not meant to white-knuckle your way through this whole Christian life. You're not meant to pretend on it. We see two Pharisees that respond to Jesus in radically different ways than the, than the, the terrors of the clothes and the puller out of hearers. One we see in John 3, it's Nicodemus, and he sneaks over to Jesus under the cover of night, and he's like, Jesus, I don't want anybody to see me here talking to you, but you do these amazing things. What in the world is going on? Jesus says the born again. He's like, born again? That's so bizarre. And then, he, then we get to John 3, 16, and we sort of exit out of that verse, but we miss Jesus saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I'm explaining spiritual things with earthly wisdom to you, and you don't get it. There are spiritual things that have no earthly counterpart. I have no idea how you're going to understand those if you can't even get the earthly things. Your earthly mind can't do this. Your earthly will can't do this. Your earthly emotions can't deal with this. This is supernatural stuff we're talking about. Again, should be the second asterisk, right? The first should be Christianity. Don't try this alone. Christianity, don't try this on your own, in your own strength, in your own power. You weren't meant to. And the second Pharisee that we see that encounters Jesus was riding on a horse, which should be an indication that he was going to war. It was Saul who had just overseen the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, and now he's riding up to Damascus. He's going to declare war on this church. He's going to drag those Christians out. He's going to kill them. And on his way, on his horse, he gets encountered by a living, resurrected Jesus, blinded by the light, right? As that song so aptly says, he was blinded by the light. He was led to this person's house, hands laid on him, receives the Holy Spirit, and literally scales fall off of his eyes. And Paul gets some of the most profound spiritual wisdom from heaven, from the Holy Spirit. He writes most of the New Testament and all of these letters teaching and laying foundations. That was the second Pharisee. Paul understood this other system. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had the perfect religious resume, and it wasn't getting him anywhere. In fact, when Jesus showed up, Paul tried to kill him tried to kill his followers, was all about destroying that way. He didn't recognize Jesus. That's why also in 2 Corinthians 5, when he said, we used to understand Jesus from a worldly point of view, now we have a spiritual point of view. We do this with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants that ah, zombie you to get drug out into the light and transformed and reborn. So when Jesus shows up, 
The uh in us usually acts out. And when we are in situations where we find ourselves acting out or acting in ways, we shouldn't go, oh, good Christians don't act that way. We should say, Holy Spirit, come. What's going on in me? What is this? I need to talk to someone about this. I don't know why I feel these things. That thing in you wants to run to drugs and sex and alcohol and work and porn. That's what it wants to run to, to satisfy. Right? That's where it goes. When you feel that, something's happening. The Lord has orchestrated situations and circumstances and relationships to squeeze and put pressure on so you can see what junk is still left in the bottom of the tube Not so you can shove it in, put the lid on, and hope nobody notices. I still have stuff that comes up. I just do. I expect to have stuff that comes up for the rest of my life. Because I am fallen and being made new. There's a fancy New Testament term. It's called sanctification. When you hear sanctification, you should think squeezing crud out of the bottom of the tube. Right? It's the stuff that's hard to get to. That's the Holy Spirit's like master at getting that last little bit out. Right? Disappointments, delays, pressure, relational conflicts. Those things bring that stuff up. Don't hide those things. Deal with those things. Worship team wants to start making its way back up. Jesus did have a tri- an unbelievable triumphal entry, and we're going to see this story unfold and all that it means, and we'll keep unpacking over and over and over again for the rest of our lives. But he also has a triumphal initial entry into our hearts and a Holy Spirit continual entry back into our lives where he is doing and orchestrating things to transform us from the inside out, so we don't have to pretend anymore. So we're going to enter back into worship. Why don't you guys stand? I'm going to pray for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, you should go read that whole passage there, because here is a man who understood and lived, had an incredible will, an incredible intellect, an incredible way of walking it out, and what he's saying to the church at Corinth is, when I came, I didn't try to persuade you with my wisdom, I wanted the Holy Spirit to come and do this work, because earthly wisdom can't understand spiritual things. And that's what I'm telling you is that that inside of you that needs to be transformed is not going to be logic away. It's going to be spirited away. It is going to be a Holy Spirit that comes and transforms it. You can't wash it and make it different. If you wash it, it will be clean, but it will be the same. When the Holy Spirit comes, it was a tongue of fire that came down in the upper room. Even John the Baptist said, I'm going to baptize you with water, but there's one coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire transforms something. If it's metal, it melts it down. It boils the impurities out. If it's wood, hay, and stubble, it just burns it up. It's gone. It's transformed. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that as the Holy Spirit orchestrates your life and as things come up, that you will find a community in this room that you can share those things with, that the Holy Spirit can transform because that is what the king came to do. He came to establish something new. Because guess what? 
There's not a temple anymore. You're the temple. And just the way Jesus rode in and tossed out everything in the temple that shouldn't be there, you should expect that the Holy Spirit's going to keep riding in to your temple and tossing out everything that shouldn't be there. Don't let that scare you. Don't let that shame you. Let that free you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your incredible entry. Thank you that you came. Thank you for the, the bravery, the, the, the strategy for everything that you did, Lord, so that it happened according to your Father's will and plan. Thank you that you took all of our crud on you, that you deposited it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for resurrecting Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for ascending and not saying you had to stay on earth as a king, but you wanted to ascend so the Spirit could come, take up residence inside of each one of us. And Lord, for those of us who the Spirit is bubbling stuff up right now, I pray you'll give us all the courage to share that, to share it with you, Lord, to roll it off over on you, to see you come, Holy Spirit, in power into the situations and circumstances of our life that we have no idea how to fix, relationships we can't fix, hurts we can't fix, health we can't fix, situations we can't fix, and see the power of the Holy Spirit transform it. And Lord, I pray that you will lift off shame, that this will be a safe place and a safe body. And as we take communion, as we enter back into worship, Holy Spirit, come and have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen.